My ambition, as far as it goes, is that you might understand it, what joy is, and have it. Sometimes people ask me, I think I've got one of those faces, sometimes people ask me, <laughs> uh, thanks, <laughs> I do have one of those faces, sometimes people ask me, have you, like Jude will say to me often, Jude's my wife, you will say, are you, are you all right? Are you, I'm talking about joy today, and sometimes my face I just have one of those faces. I don't, I don't mean it. I'm, sometimes I'm deep inside of my soul. I'm bursting, but I just I look like this. This is, my, this is my face. Some of you are the same. Your faces don't eek, eek joy. What is joy? Is joy, let's talk around it, is joy that moment when that person that you fancied forever looks back at you? Is that joy? Is that something, is that something else? Is it... I'm not there yet. Is it how you feel when you've paid your mortgage off? Do you think that's what joy is like? With that kind of inner, is this what joy is when you, when you, you could just look the bank manager in the face and he's got nothing? They've got nothing on you. You know, you could just in that smug, is that what joy is? You just know now that this thing, after all these years, this house is yours. Is that what joy is? You can just kind of wander around in your back garden. It's mine at last. Is it? So we've got a, my wife's got a soft top car. We've got a soft top car given and when the sun comes out, you put the soft top back down. Honestly, hair flies back. And then the good song comes on that represents the weather. Is that, that feels amazing. People looking around at you in their cars that don't have soft tops going, I should have had a soft top. That's a really cool thing. Is that what joy is? Is joy the middle part of the holiday? Do you know, like you get on holiday, you're still stressed. Is this just me? A couple of days in, you've, you're further enough in to forget about all the stresses of home and going back's far enough away and you're in the middle and there's just this couple of days of, oh, the world just feels like, is that what joy is? Here's what joy is um, defined by Merriam-Webster. Joy is the emotion evoked by well-being, success or good fortune, or by the prospect of possessing what one desires. It's a source or a cause of delight, a state of happiness. Felicity, I'm not sure what that means, and I've put it in here. Maybe you can tell me after. Or bliss, the expression of gaiety. Giddy, light-hearted, given to frivolity, joyous, gleeful, and triumphant. Do you think you've experienced joy? Have you had any of those feelings? I've had a few of them. Joy, I think human beings, it's not a straight road, joy. There are difficulties that come with the pursuit of happiness. Joy is, as the philosophers would bear out and tell us, joy is fleeting. Joy is transient. I was away my 40th through the week, and I was, it was just like this nostalgic babbling with six of my old pals. But we, all we did was, this is probably what happens when you get older, you just look back to all those things, all those joyous moments, and you can't, they've gone. They've passed you by. Joy is fleeting. And because joy is something that we love and we can't keep it forever, it's a transient thing. It's a dangerous, painful thing. Let me read you a quote from a guy called Frank Commode who writes, who wrote about happiness and the pursuit of happiness. It's a rich quote, and I know sometimes people read quotes, you just, maybe you don't listen, and I'm not going to open the screen, but just try and absorb some of the depth of this. He puts it, he puts the kind of thing I'm suggesting 
into nice poetic language. It seems there is a sort of calamity built into the texture of life. To hold happiness is to hold the understanding that the world passes away from us, that the petals fall and the beloved dies. No amount of mockery, no amount of fashionable scowling will keep any of us from knowing and savoring the pleasure of the sun on our faces or save us from the adult understanding that it cannot last forever. It's like beautifully put, but it's this like semi-romantic, tragic warning that comes to us. If you're going to get involved with joy, and you will, then somewhere down the line, I think this is kind of his argument, this is the kind of thing he's saying, somewhere down the line, if you're going to get involved with joy, then your heart's going to get broke. That's, that's the kind of the stark warning. And I think... I think we know a little bit, bit about this. I'm looking around for the, for the football fans in the room. I know we've got a Tottenham fan. You maybe got a few Tottenham fans. We've got, probably got no Man City fans in here. We've got Liverpool fans in here. Probably got Leeds fans in here. Got some Cass fans in here, in here. Sports fans know a little bit about this. When your team wins, I mean, on, on Tuesday night, was it? Your heart gets moved just to the most, like Liverpool, I don't know if you know, if you're familiar with the footy, Liverpool won 4-0 against Barcelona, it was just ridiculous. And I, I'm not a Liverpool fan, and I was dancing around my room, screaming, and my wife didn't know what had happened to me. To be engaged with joy is to be engaged with heartbreak. I had to counsel my son through the World Cup. I had to counsel him through the World Cup. I sat there watching him get carried away with the prospect that England would win. And he, he had this kind of inner belief, and I'm watching him with my arm around him, and I'm saying to him, son, it's heartbreak's coming. And he's like, no, dad, they're amazing. We're going to win. And his heart got carried away. And then in the semi-final, watched my son cry actual tears as his heart was broken, and I cried with him. And I said, son, it's like this. This is what it's like. You invest your heart in it, and then they break your heart. And maybe you're not a sport. Yeah, it's true. We did. We both cried. Maybe you're... Maybe you're not a sports fan, but somewhere down the line for you, with a, with a relationship, with, a, with an ideal that you've got about life, with a hope, with your career, something like that, somewhere down the line, you pile enough joy into it, the thing that you do that you love, your heart will get broken somewhere down the line. That's, that's the end of it. So what do we do? with joy. What do we do if that's the outcome? I'll tell you what we do, and you'll have done it the same as me. We lower our expectations. We manage our expectations to avoid hurt. We put rules in place. We lower the bar. In order to achieve serenity, we rule out joy. Let me read to you the words of a man, I don't know which one wrote it, Simon or Garfunkel, but who must have been hurt by love and reached a point in their lives where they said, I'm going to protect myself. In order to get by in this life, in order that I experience the best joy or I can function with joy, I'm going to lower the bar. Here are the words. Maybe you'll know the song. If you're of a certain vintage, you'll know the song. And I might slip into the tune because I quite like the song. I can't, but I'll not sing. I promise. I'll not sing. But Okay. I had another song that was a rap song and I've scribbled it out, so don't worry about that. A winter's day in a deep, dark December, I am alone, gazing from my window to the streets below. 
on a freshly fallen silent strand of snow. I am a rock, I am an island. I've built walls, a fortress deep and mighty that none may penetrate. I have no need of friendship. Friendship causes pain. It's laughter and it's loving. I disdain, I am a rock, I am an island. Don't talk of love, but I've heard those words before. It's sleeping in my memory. I won't disturb the slumber of the feelings that have died. If I never loved, I never would have cried. I am a rock, I am an island. And when you hear that, they're the words of a man who's figuring out how to deal with the trauma of joy. And as I read those words, and I think I've been somewhere near that as a romantic 17, 18-year-old lad, I think, well, maybe that could work. Just lower the expectations, don't go for the joy. But is that, is that living? I am a rock, I am an island, I've built walls, a fortress deep. I disdain laughter and it's loving. That kind of, that can be what happens. Maybe you know people like this, maybe, maybe this is you. Maybe you've dropped the bar. Maybe you've become like a rock to deal with the joy. C.S. Lewis puts it beautifully, I think. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. This is what he says. And Epicurus, the Greek philosopher, has a, has a theory on life similar shuts down, everything shuts down. That's the way to experience perfect joy. What do we do? Do we, how do we get through this joy? Do we, do we go all in like the Liverpool fans, just commit to it and get our hearts broken? Or do we make up rules to get us by? There's a story that we're gonna look at just now that gives us, I think, in this world where the joys are temporal and they can crush us, and we don't want to become like a stone, this story gives us, I think, hope about how to live through the joy. It's the story of Mary Magdalene, this woman who had this moment where she should have been going to her most saddest breakdown in moment. She should have been giving up. She should have been going, this is the heartbreak. I'm going to become like the rock. In that moment, she experiences not just joy, but great joy. I think that the joy in the Bible, I think it's, we have this generic sense of joy. I think that the joy in the Bible is worth exploring. 
I think it's, I want you to have it. This story is going to help us see two ways, I think, in which the joy in the Bible is different, better, deeper, richer, more beautiful than this generic sense of joy that we know. So I've got two points in, in, that help me illustrate why, why this joy is different. The first one is Christian joy is not governed by what people think about you, but what God knows about you, or by what you know God knows about you. We'll talk a little bit about this character, Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene's story is just an incredible story in the Bible. She doesn't get along, Mary Magdalene, but her story is incredible. It's an incredible story of change. When we first meet her, if you've, if you've got the phones or anything you want to follow along, it, it won't be up on the screen. It's in Luke 8, 1, 3. She is, she's demon-possessed. And for, if we can't understand what it's like to be demon-possessed, I think you can imagine the most troubled individual you've ever come across. This is this woman's story. She's just, and society like, wouldn't know what to do with her. In fact, society, I'm pretty sure, would just dismiss this troubled woman. And yet, Jesus saves her. And this is the story. Jesus saves her, but she doesn't slip into the culture of the time and jump back and find a fella and live happily ever after. She, well, it's incredible. Let me read it through what she does. Luke 8, 1 to 3. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women, and this is the line, these women were helping to support them out of their own means. This was, this bunch of women here, I mean, they're, they're an eclectic bunch for a start. You've got this distressed woman, and you've got somebody, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, who, who is powerful and important. And these women, they don't just slip into the caricatures that we expect. They provide for this band of disciples. That's not they make the tea and make the food, as happens in some cultures. They support this. They fund this. They raise this money. This is the story of this demon-possessed woman. It's an incredible story. It's radical. It's so different to the rest of the time. People looking around would have wondered what on earth was going on with this Jesus and his disciples. That's the first time that we come across her. The next time we come across her, it's this moment where Jesus is heading to the cross, and it's this pressure cooker moment. And Jesus says to these 12 disciples, you're all going to run away. And maybe he says it more broadly than that. He says, everybody's going to run away. And everybody does run away, except this troubled, formerly demon-possessed, radical, different woman. She stays. When everybody's wanting to kill all the Christians, when there's so much anger and there's so much turmoil, she stays. When the, when the men, as Jesus is crucified, lock their doors or run away to Emmaus, she goes down to the side of the tomb 
when everyone thinks the story is finished, these women find that the tomb is empty and they find the angel outside. And for a brief moment, this demon-possessed woman who really confuses us, she is on her own in knowing the full story of the resurrection. The whole future of the rest of the church sits inside of this trembling, scared woman. It's an incredible story, and that joy is all hers. Now, here's the, here's the shocker. So you look at that in the cold light of day, and you go, that's a, that's a beautiful story. That's a woman whose heart was changed, and she follows the Savior, and nothing gets in the way of that. But that story has been difficult for human beings throughout the rest of history to get their heads around. We cannot comprehend a story like that. We can't get our heads around it. Not the people of the day couldn't, and people throughout history couldn't. We come up with, we thought that she was a prostitute for about a thousand years, something like that. Got confused with our stories. We seem pretty convinced. There's been so much ink spilt about this woman and the fact that she must have had some sort of illicit relationship going with Jesus. She must, there must have been some, we can't just have that this is the story. There's been so many words written down about her, like just saying this, it can't have been so pure, it can't have been, it can't have been this story of devotion. It must have been something else. Let me give you a bit of a life hack on what it means to be a Christian. I think the life changed by Christ won't make sense to everybody. You, we have this idealistic view of it that, that when we're changed and the good deeds that you want to do, if you're a Christian, the good deeds that you want to do, people are going to look in and go, oh, that's great that you're doing that. Look at this story. This woman is transformed. She's changed. She's devoted. She's all these things. And yet, throughout history, we have struggled to comprehend what on earth was going on there. And, we did, and it, honestly, humanity has not liked it. They've been confused by it. I've got to tell you this. Your faith, that in your own heart, you're like, I'm doing good things, and I'm changed by God, and I want to help people, and I, you know, I want to read my Bible, and I'm, it, means it leads me to prayer, and it leads me to be full of compassion, and it needs me to not ogle at women, and it, it leads me to have ideals. It sounds good, but people are going to be a bit freaked by this. It's not always going to be received with warmth. The opinion in today's society, I think particularly, of other people holds so much weight. We give it so much significance and it affects so much our capacity for joy these days. Other people's words, other people's thoughts. You get a kid in the playground who's got this thing that he loves. Some other kid comes along. You see, you know, this kid, it's just, this is his favorite thing. This is his whole life. This is what he does all the time. Another kid comes along and says, that's a rubbish thing. Nobody likes that thing. Just the power of those words can take away all the joy from that situation. 
in the social media world that we live in, I don't know if you've ever had this, where you've had what you think is the best thing in the whole world and you've posted about it and then nobody likes it. <laughs> nobody likes it at all, or then your dad likes it, which is almost worse. Do you know what I mean? And your dad jumps in and, and you're like, oh. And it's like this, the weight of other people's opinion, can, it can be like a joy stealer, can't it? Have you noticed the way that that influences society? Do you ever have days, I have days like this in my insecure moments where I'm like, oh, just somebody affirm me. Somebody just tell me I look all right. Somebody just tell me I do a good job. Somebody just like my post. We have this life where other people's opinions can be like massive in our world, can't it? We've, and I don't know how many thousands of words have been written about Mary Magdalene like besmirching her, telling us that she was this and that or the other. But her joy, the joy that she reached, was guaranteed. Why? Because God knew the truth about her. God knew the truth about that story. It didn't matter how, didn't matter how many wrong words are written about her. God could look at her and see the truth. That is our joy. That is our joy before God. This is what the psalmist wrote. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Christian joy comes when you've laid bare your heart to God, when you've leveled with him when you've asked for forgiveness, when you've told him, look, this is how I am. Christian joy comes with the confidence of knowing that God's seen deep inside of your heart. He's seen the truth of what's going on. And he's okay with it. So then you know that there's no amount of horrible words can steal that away. There's no lie about you that somebody can tell that can tarnish that. There's no negative person that chews away at your life that can steal away that joy. There's nothing anyone can say that God doesn't know about you. There's no crime that you've done in the past that somebody can dig up that he hasn't already died to save. There's no accusation strong enough, no finger point big enough. Your joy as a Christian comes from your comfort in the truth in that God knows the truth about you. That's the first point. Second point, Christian joy comes when we realize that what saves us is an eternal thing, not a temporal thing. Christian joy comes when we realize what saves us is an eternal thing and not a temporal thing. I think one of the hardest things to deal with as a human being is the temporality of life. It's, it's facing up to the things, 
that things don't always stay that way. Dealing with the bits that come to an end. Um, I can remember the time when, when I used to go to the chemist just to get hair gel. That was the only reason I went to the chemist. I'd go into the chemist and it would just be to buy hair gel. I don't know if you ever did that. And I would look around at these vast you know, rows of products, these creams and ointments and all this, and I would think, what on earth is going to happen to the human body that it's going to need all these creams and ointments to get it through? You know, I would just look on in wonder at this, and now I'm 40, and I'm familiar with half the chemistry store now. And now I don't, there's a couple of rows, and I could tell in King Street in Normanton, there's at least there's, there's one row, really. I've never been there. I don't, I don't want to know what's on that row because I don't want to know what's going to happen to me next. Do you know what I mean? I don't want to go there. It's horrible getting older. There's a time, isn't there, when your hair is this, like, just this thing to accentuate your good looks, and now it feels really like, as a 40-year-old man, that hair's just starting to take the mick. Do you know what I mean? It just, it doesn't stay on there where it should, and it seems to be coming out of every other orifice that makes you look more and less and less unpleasant. Do you know, it's horrible, isn't it, getting older? We get out, we droop, we creak, we bend. Losing, and I've just had all the jokes, but isn't it, isn't it a painful thing to, to be faced with the reality that, you're, that you get older, that, that wrinkles come, that teeth fall out? Isn't that, that's hard, isn't it? Because you treasure, and you look back at old photographs that in moments of your glory that have gone. How, how hard, and I guess increasingly talking as, an, as a 40-year-old guy, but when you look back at your life, to joyous moments, seasons of life that you would wish would be there forever, like a friendship that you formed. And if, you, if it's your joy, you, you commit to it, it hurts, doesn't it, like nothing else when that comes to an end. How hard is that? Relationships that we've had, friendships that we've made. I just... Every generation that passes in my life, when I get my 20s, my 30s, my 40s, I always look back and I think, I was just beginning to get that sorted out. I was just figuring out how to be a 30-year-old guy, and now it's gone. Or I was just figuring out how to be a dad with kids. I should have enjoyed that more. And it's temporal, and it's gone, and it aches the soul. Mary Magdalene has this revelationary moment. She, she goes to the tomb, and she's in this cycle where she's figuring out how to deal with the death that's coming. Her, she's ready to go there. She's got the spices in hand. I think it says that in the text. She's got spices in hand. She's not expecting Jesus to be raised again. She's not that faithful. She's expecting him to be dead. And yet, she has this incredible moment. She's, she's, she's prepped for heartbreak. She's had three years or so with a Savior that's been joyous. And she's come to this point and she's thought, this is it. It's finished now. It's over now. And yet, she gets there and there's nobody in the tomb. Instead of a corpse, there's an empty tomb. Instead of a guard, there's an angel. Instead of sadness, she has joy. That's her story. She has joy. Here's the life hack for joy. I say this carefully. It's this realization that the temporal is not all that there is. And you stop looking for the temporal 
to be your savior. And you look to something that is eternal. Our joy is the feeling that comes when you're fueled by the hope that there is something more. She gets there, she claps her eyes on what should be a dead friend and there's nothing there. And she is filled with great joy because she can look back and she's been getting up every morning for three years, hanging on to the words of this guy who saved her. And now this guy who saved her happens to be an eternal thing. Everything changes. All of the sadness and the fears and the closure of confinement to mortal life, all of, all of the, what she thought was the whole story has changed because she's found Jesus and he is an eternal thing. That is the joy that we have. It's not that it's not that we're saved by things, that we hang on to things anymore. It is that we are saved by something that is eternal. It's the thought you have when that you know that your forever is safe. It's the thought you have when you realize that death is not definitive. It's the thought you have when your dreams can stretch to more than just a nice holiday. They can stretch to world peace. They can stretch to anything because Jesus is risen. King David put it like this. He said, joy is like a tree planted by streams that bears its fruit in season, no matter what the weather is. Gives us this picture of a tree that when the storms come should really just die should really not be able to survive this, and yet this tree survives. Why does it survive? Because it's got this stream running by it. Paul said, it's like a peace which is beyond human explanation. He said that your hearts and minds are guarded. It gives us the picture of a heavily defended Roman city. He says, whatever's going on out there is not going to affect you because you are guarded. You are secure. Not that there's not going to be trouble in your life, but that you can sit peacefully. You can wander around the city whistling, if you like, because you know that you are safe and secure. Is there a way for us to pursue joy? Here's my thoughts. Without Jesus, down the line, somewhere, you're heading towards a broken heart. With Jesus, Life still might suck. I don't know if your joy will make it to a song, but if all of your hopes are in him, if you can trust that he sees your heart, you should know that you will always be okay.